We are in 1 Samuel chapter 24. We've been in uh, the, the book of 1 Samuel now for a number of weeks and uh, likely will be here until Easter, if the Lord allows. What we find in 1 Samuel 24, I believe, is uh, great, the greatest victory that David ever experienced. If I asked you, what was David's greatest win? What was his greatest victory? I think most people would say uh, it's the time that he was victorious over the giant of a man, Goliath. And we studied that a few weeks ago, and certainly that is a great victory in the life of David, and he'll always be known as the one who defeated Goliath. I think some people might look a little broader at the story of David, and they might say the greatest victory really is his victory over the Philistines, the perennial enemy of the Israelites. And David won this victory both as a soldier and then as a king, and it was a great victory. And you would be right as well. But I think perhaps the greatest victory that David had is found right here in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Um, you know, oftentimes it's true of us just like it was true for David. Our greatest victories are not over adversaries or even obstacles or difficulties we face, but our greatest victory is a victory over ourselves. And in this story, we're going to see that David is tempted uh, to do something that would have negatively affected the rest of his life. It was a strong temptation. It was, uh, it, it was a personal decision that he had to make in the darkness of a cave. And it's a decision that though it would have been a terrible decision, uh, it wouldn't have had any immediate negative uh, consequences. Uh, and that's, that's all, always true, right? We wouldn't make bad decisions if the consequences were immediate. And in this case, they were not immediate. But David made the right decision. And David chose to trust God, to wait on God, instead of taking things into his own hands. And that victory determine the rest of David's life. So I want us to see 1 Samuel chapter 24. Let's begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. And so if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that Saul the king, the present king, is jealous of David, the future king, and he's uh, pursuing him. He's trying to, he's trying to kill him. And so David is hiding. He is, he is running best he can. He's run out of food. We saw last week. He's hungry. He's hiding in the caves, the desert caves. Uh, in Gedi is just uh, not very far from the Sea of Galilee. In fact, uh, not the Sea of Galilee, but the Dead Sea. You can see one from the other. Uh, I was at uh, the cave of Engedi just this last July, a little bit of a distance, but able to see there where David was and where Saul's army would have stopped. And so David is on the run. He is hiding with his men in the cave near Engedi. Look at verse 2. It says, Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And so Saul's on the, on the hunt, on the hunt. Verse 3, when Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there 
And he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Now, this is a funny story, perhaps. Uh, Could be uh, PG. We'll be very careful with it. But it's interesting how uh, sometimes in the Bible, there are these ancient Hebrew idioms. An idiom is just a cultural way to say something. And the Bible will translate those into a contemporary idiom. And I don't understand exactly why they do that. Uh, But here, uh, when it says that Saul went into the cave, King Saul gets up off his camel, goes into the cave, says he went in to relieve himself. In the Hebrew, it says he went in to cover his feet. And so he would wear a robe and you can you can uh, create the mental picture yourself. He covered his feet. Uh, I uh, spent a few weeks in China a few years ago. The way they would say it in China is that he was using the squatty potty. And the way we say it in Texas is he made a stop at Bucky's. (laughs) So thousands of caves on the side of this mountain. What are the chances that the one cave... Uh, that David is hiding in, that's the one cave where Saul uh, relieves himself. Uh, Look at verse four. So they said to him, look, this is the day. These are the men who are with uh, David hiding in the cave. They said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you, I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Now, God didn't actually say that. They had just made that up. Uh, It says, then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So I want you to have this, um, have this mental picture. David is holed up in a cave with his, uh, uh, with his uh, soldiers, with those that have accompanied him. Saul is uh, with his thousands of soldiers, his, uh, traveling down the road. David and his men would have been peering out, very careful to stay in the shadows, knowing that if they were spotted, uh, that the thousands of soldiers on Saul's side would just quickly end the lives of David and his men. And then all of a sudden, the procession with the king and his soldiers stops right outside the cave. I imagine these men were holding their breath. They were hiding in the shadows. What's going to happen? And then they see Saul get off his camel, I suppose, and he starts walking right toward them. He's all by himself. That would have been puzzling. What is the king doing? Has he spotted us? Is he coming in here? And so they're waiting. Saul walks into the cave. They can all just feel their hearts just beat, beat, beat. And then Saul goes to the bathroom and uh, the Bible says the the men say to David, David, God has already told you you're going to be the king. Saul has rebelled against God. Everyone knows that. Now here he is in this vulnerable position. This is your chance. It says, so David gets up and he tiptoes to where Saul is. He's got his sword in one hand. He's holding his nose in the other hand, with the other hand. (laughs) And he gets there 
and he just cuts off a little bit of Saul's robe. Saul never knows, not till a few verses later. And uh, it's pretty anticlimactic. You know, he, there's no blood, there's no violence. And that, church, I believe, was the greatest victory that David ever won. Um, you wonder how close David got to doing the wrong thing. I wonder when David made the decision. Had he already decided when he got up and to approach Saul that he would not kill him? Or do you think he made the decision as he was tiptoeing across the cave? Or do you think he made the decision not to kill the king just right before he cut off the corner of Saul's robe? We don't know. We don't know. But David won his greatest victory right there. Look at verse 5. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Uh, David had a very sensitive spirit. Verse 6, he said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. Uh, David said, it's the word of the Lord that you don't kill the king. And I'm not going to kill the king because that's the word of the Lord. And it's important to notice here that David didn't decide to do this because of his magnanimous spirit. David didn't try to do this, didn't do this because he had this love, respect, and admiration of Saul. No, none of those things were true. David simply did it because it was the right thing to do. David understood that it is impossible to accomplish the purpose of God by breaking the commands of God. And so David, David won this great victory. Look at verse 7. It says, with these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. And then Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now, this is one of those verses that we often just overlook, uh, but I think it's one of the greatest pictures of leadership and responsibility in all the Bible. Uh, David's men encouraged David to kill the king. And had they been left to their own devices, they would have killed the king. But David, listen, he made an independent decision, not persuaded by those that were pushing him. He made a decision based upon the word of God. He didn't do something that was wrong and then blame it on other people. He said, I know what is right. And regardless of the pressure, that's what I'm going to do. Okay. That's a picture of responsibility. And then David persuaded the men to follow him in that act of obedience. That is a picture of leadership. So how did David win this battle? How did he avoid making this horrible decision, killing Saul, that would have negatively affected the rest of his life? He would have never been the legitimate king. Uh, God, had, God had told him he would be the king, but had he killed the king and become the king because he killed the previous king, then he would not have been the king because God made him the king and people wouldn't have trusted him as the king. And the whole rest of the story would have been very different. This one decision, when David denied everything that must have been in his heart, when David denied his anger, when David denied his frustration and his stress and his fear, and when David did what was right and had a victory over himself, how was that possible? I think David made the wise decision here because he overcame 
some, uh, some supervillains of wisdom. So all of us want to make wise decisions. Right? I want my decisions to be wise and helpful and productive. But there are some villains that fight against the wise decisions that we desire to make. And I want you to see, there were six villains here. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. Six villains that David faced. Six villains that David defeated. Number one, impatience. And I want you to know that this is the, this is the villain that has my number. Uh, so how do you respond when life is not going as you expected it to go. If you look at David's situation, he was anointed to be the next king. He gained the favor of the people when he defeated Goliath. And then Saul really abdicated the throne when he rebelled against the Lord. And so now David has got to be wondering, this is not how I expected things to go. This even a year ago is not where I thought I would be. Here I am hungry. And I'm hiding out in this cave slash restroom. And there must have been this impatience, the supervillain of impatience that wells up in David's heart and says, no, now's the time. I want to be king and I want to be king now. And I can be king now because Saul is in this, in this compromising situation But David knew that the transition from King Saul to King David was not something that he could do. It was something that only God could do. And he decided to wait on God. And that was his greatest victory. I'll tell you that one of the biggest struggles in my life is when I have to choose to wait on God. I want to get things done. I want to push ahead. I want to, uh, I want to, I want to do it today. But God says that there are times when we need to wait. Certainly there are times when we need to be aggressive and take the lead, of course. But there's no time when impatience is warranted. So let me tell you how this works in me. So when I face a a problem, a difficulty, uh, there's a mantra I think I repeat to myself. I don't know if you have the same personality as as me, but this is what I say to myself. I've got a problem. I say to myself, I'm resourceful. Give me the ball. Uh, I'll handle it. I'll figure it out. I'll work harder, I'll think smarter, I'll do something that other people might not be willing to do, and I will make it happen or I'll fix the problem. Now, I'm not always successful at that, but that's, that's what I say to myself. What I ought to say to myself is, Lord, perhaps this is a time that I need to pause and I just need to wait and I need to trust. You see, I think sometimes all of my, I can handle this, and I'm resourceful, and I'm committed, and I think a lot of times that's just a cover-up for the truth that I struggle to trust God in these things. David won this victory because he was willing to trust God and wait. 
I love what the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 6. Peter said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That means wait so that God may exalt you at the proper time. God will get it done, David. God will do it. And God will do it when it ought to be done. In the meantime, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. See, the first supervillain that David had to face was that of impatience. The second supervillain was that of misguidance, misguidance, uh, bad advice. Now, generally, taking advice from other people is a good thing to do. The Bible says there's safety in a multitude of counselors. That certainly is true. But there is some counsel, there is some advice that is bad advice. And David was getting some bad advice. You know, I've learned that bad advice usually comes from two sources. Uh, Sometimes bad advice comes from validators. Uh, I don't even know if that's a real word, but there are just some people, you know who these people are in your life. There are just some people that are always going to tell you yes. No matter what it is you want to do, if you call them and say, I'm thinking about uh, robbing a bank this afternoon, uh, you think that's a good idea? And they'd say, listen, I'm all with you. I'm behind you. I love you and I support you. Uh, at least that's what they'll tell you. Uh, there's some people that'll just agree with anything. I'm thinking about divorcing my wife. Well, Lord wants you to be happy. And you know, you've, you've been married almost three months. So you've given it, uh, you've given it your, you know, your best shot. And you know, there's just some people that are going to agree with everything. They're validators. Don't go get advice from validators. Then the other source of poor advice, worldly counselors. That's, that's what David had. He had people who were making decisions and giving advice based on something other than the word of God. They were saying, David, this is what you ought to do because it makes sense. This is what you ought to do because God wants you to be the king anyway at some point. So just, just based on their heart, just based on their foolish reasoning, they were given advice But they weren't giving advice based on God's word. And so it was poor advice. One of the reasons why we make such bad decisions sometimes is we have misguidance. Number three, the third supervillain, pro-con lists. Now, I bet you weren't expecting that uh, if you're filling out the outline ahead of time. But let me tell you what I mean. Have you ever made a pro-con list when you're making a decision. I've done that a bunch of times. And um, I think it's a pretty common practice. You list all the reasons you should do it this way and all the reasons you should do it that way. I don't know where we learned this. I I, I don't know who told us to do it like this. Uh, And and, and I guess there would be some advantage to it if, if that's the way that you make sure you're considering all of the factors Involved, but there's one fatal error in this. And, and listen, this is this pertains to a lot more than just a pro-con list. But but let me let me tell you what I mean with this uh, uh, w- w- with this in mind. When we make these lists, we often make the Word of God just one item on a long list of other items. 
Now, this week I made a pro-con list for David. I don't know if he did this in the cave, but I've done it for him. All the reasons why he should kill Saul and all the reasons why he shouldn't. I'll give them to you. Here are the reasons why he ought to kill the king. First, first, Saul deserved to die because of what he, was, what he had done and what he was trying to do. Clearly, Saul deserved to die. He was, a, he was this murderous man. The people, by the way, last week that gave David and his men food, we didn't read the verses, but Saul found out about it, and he killed them and all of their family. Saul deserved it. So that's a reason to kill Saul. The second reason, pro, killing Saul, um, well, just what I said, because he had just killed the priests and their families who had given David food. The next reason why he should kill Saul is because Saul was rebelling against the Lord. He was a rebellious king. He was causing great harm. The next reason that David should have killed Saul is everybody thought it was the right thing to do. I don't think anybody would have disagreed. Even the people who were the soldiers of Saul, they all understood that David needed to be the next king. The next reason, pro, for killing Saul, it would allow Israel to better focus on the Philistines. Now you see they're locked in battle with the Philistines, and this is a battle where the Israelites very easily could have, been, could have lost and been slaughtered and wiped off the face of the earth. They weren't necessarily militarily superior. This was a real battle. And in the middle of this battle, Saul has taken 3,000 of his best soldiers off the front lines to go hunt David. That's ludicrous. So that's a good reason to kill Saul. Another reason to kill Saul is it would curtail inevitable bloodshed that would ensue if Saul's men and David's men ended up in a battle. Hundreds, thousands perhaps people would be killed. Another reason to kill Saul was, is that it would just speed up what God has said he wanted to do anyway. It would really just be helping God out. God wants David to be the king. God's, you know, Hadn't had his coffee this morning. It's not happening as quickly as uh, perhaps it could. And David could just speed up the whole process if he just killed Saul. So those are all the reasons to do it. I can only think of one reason not to do it. Because God said, taking justice into one's hand and killing the king is wrong. Okay, so now let's look at it. We've got seven really good reasons to kill Saul and only one reason not to kill Saul. So what should we do? Here's the fatal error. You can't compare seven and one. No, because what? Because the Bible trumps everything else. Sometimes, listen church, we sit down and we make decisions that we think are logical and reasonable and rational, but we have neglected to honor God's word in that. You know, there are really two points I want to make here quickly. Number one, knowledge, real knowledge, begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You haven't looked at something logically, reasonably, rationally, unless you start with God's word. And then the second uh, part of this, don't trust your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I bet you know this passage, trust in the Lord with all your heart and rely not, lean not on your own understanding. What does that mean? Don't lean on your own understanding. It means that God's word trumps 
your understanding. Don't lean on your understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him, know him, and he will straighten out your paths, it says. And so one of the enemies that David had to defeat, one of the supervillains of, of wise decision, is just this logical, pro-con, rational thing that we think we embrace that gives us an excuse to ignore the simple word of God. Number four, supervillain number four, I'm going to really surprise you with this one, astrology. Astrology. Now you're thinking... There's no astrology in 1 Samuel chapter 24. What's he talking about? And there's not anybody here in our church that would be so foolish that they would make decisions based on the alignment of the stars. Uh, Well, let's see. Let's see. How did David's companions come to their recommendation? These soldiers with David, they suggest that David uh, kill the king. How did they decide that? Well, if you look back at verse 4, it says, they said, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. What they said is that the circumstance, obviously, Saul could have chosen a thousand different caves to relieve himself, but he chose this cave. David, you could have chosen a thousand caves, but you chose this cave. Obviously, God has brought this together. The circumstances, there's no question you ought to kill Saul. Now, notice what they've done. What they've done is they've said that some circumstance, some convenience, the lining up of stars, so to speak, I mean, for them, it wasn't stars. For them, it was bathrooms. But they said, these circumstances have lined up. And so, obviously, that's what we should do. We do this all the time. We would dismiss astrology because we think that's foolish. But we still just look at circumstances. And we ignore God's word. I hear people say it like this. Well, if God opens a door, I'm going to go through it. Well, if God opens the door, you should go through it. But, but how do you know that God opened the door? Maybe Saul just picked the wrong cave, right? I hear people say, well, if an opportunity arises, if they offer me the job, if a bank says I can afford the house, uh, God wouldn't have allowed that person in my life if he didn't want me to be close to her. If he asks me out on a date, I hear people say, I don't believe in coincidences. Well, what does that even mean? You don't believe in coincidences. Who told you that you shouldn't believe in coincidences? I'm not even sure what that means. God does not reveal truth through the alignment of the stars or through the circumstances in our lives, at least not the circumstances alone. That is as foolish as flipping a quarter. You know, if you flip a quarter, it's going to be right half the time. And just making decisions based on circumstances, you're going to be right sometimes, but you're going to be wrong sometimes. What do they say? A broken clock is right twice a day. And then coincidences. I'm not denying that God is sovereign and controls everything. Certainly he does. But there's no deep meaning or revelation of truth in coincidences, at least not one that we can discern, coincidences 
and our understanding of them should not uh, supplant the authority of the Word of God. Now, the next enemy, uh, supervillain of wise decisions, is passion, passion, emotion. I'll not spend much time here, but if we just thought of the emotions that must have been running through David's heart and mind, he certainly would have been angry, he would have been frustrated, he would have been disappointed. Uh, He perhaps would have had a fierce hatred in some ways for Saul. If we're not careful, we will let our passions make decisions that we ought to allow our spirits informed by God's word to make. David defeated uh, the supervillain of passions. And then the final one, indifference, indifference. Let me tell you what I mean by this. If you look back at verse four, it says, they said, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so that you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up, secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. See, David's men said, David, this is a God-given opportunity. And you know what? The men were right. This was a God-given opportunity. I don't believe in coincidences. But it wasn't a God-given opportunity for David to kill Saul. It was a God-given opportunity. Are you listening? It was a God-given opportunity for David to honor the Lord. All of a sudden, Saul's in this compromising situation. David's in the shadows with a sword. David has a chance to kill Saul, yes. But David also has a chance to honor the Lord in such an incredible way. I mean, don't you recognize the honor of the Lord? When David says, as much as I want to be the king, I would rather honor God's word than be the king. It it, it was an opportunity for David to demonstrate to everybody, to all of his men. But if you read the next few verses, this is all exposed to Saul's men as well. This is an opportunity for David to demonstrate to all of them what it means to trust the Lord. Don't you know that they all stood there saying, how in the world did David not do that? That's what it means to trust the Lord. They got to see a picture of that. David had an opportunity to show people what it meant to hold God's word in high regard. This was an opportunity for David. It just wasn't an opportunity for David to kill the king. It was an opportunity for David to honor the Lord. And David took that grand opportunity. Listen, when something happens in our lives, particularly if something is bad, hard, negative, hurtful, we often see that as an opportunity to sin. We see it as an opportunity to have a bad attitude. We see it as an opportunity to say things we shouldn't say or to do things that we shouldn't do. When something bad happens, we, well, bad things have happened. Of course I'm going to do or say something I shouldn't say. But David's example is that he saw those times not as an opportunity to sin, but as a unique opportunity to honor the Lord. Uh, I'll tell you a secret if you promise not to tell anybody. I am, this week, I got pulled over by the Nacogdoches Police Department. 
was one evening about seven o'clock or so, and I was pulling out of the church parking lot onto North Street, and flashing lights behind me, uh, I pulled over and uh, waited for the officer to come up to my car. He was very professional, did everything exactly as uh, you would expect him to do. Um, He asked me if I knew why I was being pulled over. And I actually thought I did. My, uh, that little sticker thing in the front, I don't know, it keeps going out. And I don't know how I can get one that lasts longer, but so I pointed to it and I said, yeah, my wife hadn't fixed the, (laughs) the sticker. And he said, oh, I didn't even notice that. He said, uh, you change lanes without signaling. And um, so, yes, sir. And I'm not denying that I did. I don't recall, but I'm sure I did. So he takes my license and he goes back to his his, uh, vehicle. And uh, that gave me an opportunity to think. And um, I'm thinking of all the, well, nobody likes to get pulled over, right? I'm thinking, listen, it's seven o'clock at night. There wasn't another car within a thousand feet of me. I just pulled out of the church. I couldn't have been going 35 miles an hour. Uh, I just pulled out of First Baptist Church. It wasn't like I'd pulled out of First United Methodist or something. (laughs) Um, And I thought, he doesn't need to give me a ticket because I didn't turn on my blinker. And I was really getting frustrated. Uh, I hadn't had supper yet, which, so I was hangry, I guess. And, uh, but I was, I'd been studying for this message. <laughs> and so actually something like this happened twice this week. I'm telling you the story that makes me look good because I can't tell you the other one. <laughs> um, but I thought I'm at least going to inquire about, you know, whether he could think of anything else that might be better for him to do than this. And he's probably here today. So, you know, I'm really careful. I'm going to ride with somebody else home. Um, But I thought, no, you know, this isn't an opportunity for me to argue my case. I'm guilty. This is an opportunity for me to honor the Lord. That's what the Lord has done. Here's a law officer, uh, I've probably never talked to before, probably I'll never talk to again. And I could honor him and honor the Lord. And um, like I said, there was another situation where I chose uh, not as wisely, but so he came back up and, and uh, he, uh, he decided not to give me a ticket for that. <laughs> Gave me a ticket for Donna not getting the sticker changed. <laughs> but... But I said, listen, I, um, sorry I didn't uh, change, uh, I didn't use my, my turn signals, but I just appreciate what you do out here. And I know that there's danger in this. You don't know what the situation's gonna be and, and you're here to protect, provide safety. And so I thanked him and he was, as I said, he was 100% professional, except for the ticket, you know. <laughs> but. Um, Here's what I'm trying to say. When something bad happens, and that wasn't a terrible thing, but when something bad happens, you can see that as an opportunity to sin, or you could see that as an opportunity to honor the Lord. 
And I've seen it both ways as a pastor. I've seen one person be diagnosed with cancer, and I've seen them strike out against God and have a bad attitude until they put them in the casket. And I've seen other people be diagnosed with cancer and say, I trust the Lord, and however long I have left to live, I'm going to demonstrate what it means to trust the Lord. You see, the, the enemy, the enemy of a wise decision is this indifference. I don't care about the glory of God. All I care is I've got cancer or somebody said something uh, unkind about me or I've lost a loved one unexpectedly or I've been mistreated by a boss or a spouse. No, when those things happen, when we're holed up in the cave and Saul's trying to kill us. That's not a reason to sin. That's an opportunity to honor the Lord. Hey, I'm way over on time, but I got to say one more thing. Can I do that? We've said that as we study David, we're going to learn some things about life. But we also said even better than that, we're going to learn some things about Jesus. Bible says in Isaiah 9, 6 that uh, Jesus sits on the throne of David. So here, I want you to see Jesus here. So here, David is in a situation where he had the opportunity to benefit himself. He could kill the king and become the king. David had an opportunity to seize the power. David had an opportunity to bless himself. But what did David do? David said, I would rather be a blessing to Israel than a blessing to myself. I will not take the throne by force. You know, there was somebody else that did that, right? I love what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 6, look at this with me on the screen. It speaks of Jesus and it says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't see Jesus as God. He didn't see his status as God, as an opportunity to bless himself. The next verse, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He didn't see his status as God as an opportunity to bless himself, but he saw it as an opportunity to bless us. And so he was born as a human. The next verse says, and he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. See, what David did is he put the nation ahead of himself. And there wouldn't have been a person either in that cave with David or in that army with Saul that wouldn't have been blown away, shocked by David's selflessness. And so we should be shocked today a thousand times more because of what Jesus did when he put us first 
and he died on the cross for our sins. With your head bowed and eyes closed, Father in heaven, for those who have never put their trust in Christ and trusted him and his death upon the cross for forgiveness of sin, I pray that they will do that today. And Father, for those of us who have, may we celebrate the kind of love that was foreshadowed by David, but was presented to us by Jesus when he put us before himself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.